the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's the Wednesday edition of the Word Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday at 4 o'clock, we're here to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. Whatever's on your heart and mind, whatever you might be dealing with or curious about, we'll do the best that we can to answer your questions. You can call us at 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also use our toll-free number at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can also email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. And you can also send them in on the Calvary Chapel of San Antonio free mobile app. And I remind you every day, if you're calling from your car, the safest way to call is to use the KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you will be connected to our producer at the studio and we will get your questions that way. Uh, it's Wednesday, so we got some stuff going on here uh, tonight. Um, uh, our Old Testament Bible study in First Samuel uh, tonight, I'm beginning chapter 14, uh, the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer, which is um, a, a penetrating exciting, challenging portion of Scripture, one of my very, very favorites. Um, but, but honestly, when you look at this chapter of Scripture, you've got to make some decisions. So that's tonight here at Calvary Chapel. We're going to look at the first 15 verses of First Samuel chapter 14. And, of course, ladies, for you tomorrow, uh, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. I would ask everybody to keep Paula in your prayers. Uh, She will be leaving Friday morning. Uh, She will be doing a a women's retreat uh, in Galveston. It's actually for a a church in uh, Pasadena, Texas. Um, and uh, she always appreciates knowing that people are praying for her. That will be on uh, Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. She'll be speaking, uh, and we would appreciate your prayers. So questions for her come tomorrow, 340-9585. That's all I got, so let's get to something. Oh, I, I have one more thing. We had a, 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 our teachers, our staff appreciation luncheon today, and it's hard to imagine um, what it feels like to be sitting in a room with people who are your heroes. People give their time, some of them absolutely for free, and have been doing it for years and years. Others do it. Uh, we pay them, but, but certainly they don't get paid uh, anything close to what they could get paid on the outside for what they do and the talent level they bring. But these are men and women, teachers and aides, that are sacrificing for one reason, one reason only. Jesus asked them to do it. And because they're doing it out of love for him, the kids here, K through 12th grade, the kids here are the ones who get the benefit of that love and the benefit of that sacrifice. And while we take them out to a a luncheon at the end of the school year, 
every year. There is no conceivable way we could ever say thank you enough uh, for the hard work, the effort, and the, the love and the passion and the compassion that these men and women have for our kids. They're actually real heroes, superheroes in life. And I'd like the public and acknowledge uh, their contribution to these kids' futures and um, what a blessing they are to me. Okay, let's go to some questions. Here is a question from Eva, or Eva. I can never tell which. Uh, how can I change how I think about God? I can't get over feeling like he's angry with me. Eva, two things. First, um, you have a choice to make. Do you respond or give in to feelings based on your circumstances, your feelings, your emotions, or what you know for sure to be true? Now, here's something that I think is really practical and something that we need to really remember when we're under attack. Remember these feelings, this condemnation, God being angry with you, that's all finds its source at the devil. So you've got to decide what's true. It's what God's Word says and what God has already done for you. Is it true? Or are your feelings true? Where's the most credible source? And then you've got to remember when you have these emotions, when the enemy keeps pushing that replay button in your brain, that's the very time when you've got to decide who you choose to believe. Paul writing to the church of Corinth said we take thoughts like that captive and make them obedient to Christ. We have to remember continuously what God has done for you. In our study in Romans this week, we're told that here at Calvary Chapel anyway, we're told that, that at just the right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were sinners, he died for us. If he demonstrated his love for us by dying for us when we didn't care anything about him, how much more is his love toward those who love him back? So, Eva, Eva, that's what you've really got to, to deal with. You've got to make a choice. The second practical solution is that you've got to dig in to your Bible and learn who Jesus is. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and say something like, oh, I know you're mad at me. Just tell me what's wrong. And you say, no, I'm not mad at all. I know you're mad. I'm not mad at all. I wonder if Jesus does that when we think things like this. Find out who he is. Find out what he's done. How he's put his, I always call it here at the church, putting his money where his mouth is. He proved that he loved you. Instead of being angry with you, he's patient. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love, the Bible tells us. That his thoughts towards you ever are so vast they're innumerable but they're precious thoughts not evil thoughts or angry thoughts so find out who he is don't be a slave to your emotions and learn to turn off that button that the enemy keeps pushing Eva it's really important can I give you a homework assignment Eva or Eva I don't know which it is read the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians one chapter at a time read it five or six times it won't take you that long it's not that long in terms of content but read the first three chapters of Ephesians because that's what Jesus did for you he called you his friend and he wants you to believe it so let his spirit, the spirit of God that lives in you, begin to transform you. And the vehicle for that transformation, according to Romans 12, is the renewing of your mind. And you'll learn not to give in to those thoughts. Remember, they have an outside source, an evil outside source. And instead, count on, remember always, what we know for sure about Jesus. I hope that helps, Eva or Eva. I appreciate it. I'll be praying. Thank you very, very much. 340 9585. 
<clears throat> or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question, interesting question from Jason. Pastor, what tradition should we hold on to as Christians? You said in a recent program that traditions were bad. Do you mean all traditions? No, Jason, and what I, was, I hope I was clear to say was that the traditions that are bad are those that are contrary to what the Bible teaches. You know, man-made traditions only have value if those traditions can have their source, their genesis, in the Word of God. So just to do something because it's the way it's always been done or just to do it because the, the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church or somebody else does something a certain way. Uh, the early church fathers taught this or they said this or they practiced this. None of that matters. The only thing that matters are those traditions that are given to us in the Word of God. So the traditions that we should hold on to are only those. Now we all have traditions of our own. We all have things that we do, things that we go through, the same way of responding to different stimulus. But in terms of our faith, the only traditions, we call them sacraments in the New Testament church, that we're to hold on to is a sacrament of baptism upon conversion, not to get saved, but because we are saved, and the sacrament of communion, coming to the Lord's table. As often as you do this, do this, Jesus said, remembering my death until I come. So those are the traditions we pass on. You know, we don't have a tradition of foot washing because Jesus washed his disciples' feet. A tradition or a sacrament is something that Jesus did or taught on in the Gospel accounts. It's something that was practiced in the early church as alliterated by the book of Acts. And then it also would have been taught on in the epistles of the New Testament. And the only two that meet those qualifications, as I said, are baptism and communion. So those are the only things that we really need to hold on to. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't have your own family tradition, a way of doing things. But remember, if that tradition or if a church's tradition contradicts the Bible, then it becomes bad. It becomes evil. So we don't do something just because the ancient church did it or just because the Roman Catholic Church does it or just because our parents did it. So tradition in and of itself is not good or bad, it's neutral. But tradition that is inconsistent with Scripture, Jason, they're harmful and do more damage than good, to be sure. So I hope that's what you meant, and I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Jesse. Uh, Pastor Ron, in your opinion, who is the most powerful Christian ministering today? Uh, Jesse, uh, I just came, I told you at the opening of this program, from a teacher's uh, luncheon, a staff appreciation. Uh, I think they're the most powerful. They're influencing um, uh, kids' lives. Uh, we're graduating a senior class where every single one of them is a born-again believer. They understand what they believe, why they believe. And we've seen changes in their life as a result. In some cases, changes through a process that took many, many years. And it's the consistency of these teachers, these people that love them and pray for them and sacrifice for them. That's heroic. So, in my opinion, they're the most powerful Christians ministering today. Now, that doesn't mean only them. You see, I think, Jesse, that the most powerful are the ones that you never hear about. You know, there's no Apostle Paul today. Um, there are men that have big churches. There are men that God has provided huge platforms for. But they're no more heroic or powerful than the average anonymous Christian who's serving Jesus with all of his or her heart every day. And I think in a question like this, sometimes it's sort of like, well, somebody like Billy Graham, because so many people got saved at Crusades. Billy Graham is just a servant of God. 
And because he understood that he was just a servant of God, he could be used. But the man or the woman who's faithful in a little is rewarded exactly the same as the man or the woman who's faithful in a lot. We have a tendency to look for public profiles, public platforms, size of church, apparent wealth of the ministry. We think, oh, there's somebody who's really powerful, really anointed by God. Not necessarily so. And in fact, in many cases, it isn't true at all. What's true is the man or the woman who goes to your church, Jesse, and looks at somebody who's really hurting and goes to him and asks him, can I pray for you? You look troubled. Is there anything I can help you with? That's the real power of God. And those are the people, true servants of God. Those are the people who aren't looking for attention or recognition. So I think what we've got to do is sort of refocus in terms of what we think about fame and fortune. Instead, Jesus said to be the greatest, you must first be the least. The Apostle Paul, who I mentioned a moment ago, changed his name from Saul of Tarsus to Paul. Paul means little. And Paul truly understood his own littleness in relation to God. Moses described as the most humble man on the face of the earth, the most humble man who ever lived up to the time of the writing of, of uh, the Pentateuch. Moses understood his own littleness. So Jesse, in my opinion, and I think it's a biblical opinion, the most powerful person are those who are the most humble. Those who say yes to God. To whatever he asks, whenever he asks it. And those are the ones that are being used by God, sort of behind the scenes, undercover. You remember when Jesus would, would uh, heal somebody and he would say, now don't tell anybody what happened. Don't tell anybody who did this for you. That didn't work for Jesus. He was trying to stay anonymous because his time hadn't yet come. But that's the heart. Anonymity rather than public profile. Faithfulness to the task given by God, whatever it is. That's the measuring standard, not numbers of people in your church, not the reach of a television or radio ministry, not your online presence, not how magnificent your facility might be. It's just every day, every night, being faithful to whatever it is God's called you to do. Final thought on this, Jesse, is this one. Anyone, and I mean this literally, anyone, who is looking for attention is someone who is not trustworthy before the Lord. God won't share his glory. God won't put people that he loves, and he loves these people. He won't put them in a place of danger or, or compromise. So when we push and we push and we push to be something more than God's called us to do, that's not power. It may look like power when it's really just good marketing. And they look like anointing, when in fact it's just a man or a woman telling people what they want to hear. Real power comes from obedience, from humility, from understanding your own littleness in the overall scheme of things, especially as it relates to your relationship with God. And when you're that man or that woman, Jesse, that's when God will use you to do things that you never dreamed possible before. So that's the best I can do with a question like that. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Henry. Uh, my question is about Orthodox Christians. Do they believe 
in the atonement? Henry, it's a great question. Now, I want to say, as, as I begin this discussion, uh, I had a lot of questions about this recently because of Hank Hanegraaff's conversion to Orthodox Christianity. Uh, and, you know, Hank is saying, well, no, I, I'm just, just coming full circle. This is what I've been teaching and the same Bible answers I've been giving for, for my entire career on the radio. Uh, but those things aren't true. Now, most Orthodox Christians, like most Evangelicals, or most Catholics, or most Muslims, or most Jehovah's Witnesses, or most Mormons, most of them don't really know what their religion teaches. They've got a general idea. They were raised, but they're not people that really invest in the Word. They're not people that really invest in the doctrines of the Church. And most Orthodox Christians, like other religions are going through the motions and they're doing it the way they've been taught without questioning, without seeking, without really letting God touch the human heart religion has always in my view been evil religion is man trying to reach up and somehow make himself acceptable to God while relationship understanding that is benefiting because God reached down to sinful humans What a church teaches or believes, we can define as orthodox in terms of qualifying as a Christian faith, or heretical, because it contradicts what we're taught in, 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 in our Christian faith. So, having said that, uh, there are some orthodox Christians who truly know and love Jesus and are born again. Usually in response to this question, I offer the Orthodox Christians, the Coptic Christians who lost their heads to ISIS um, on the beach when, in fact, all they had to do was recant their faith and live. I have no doubt that those cos- Coptic Christians, though doctrinally wrong, doctrinally in error about a lot of things, were truly born again. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. And and they heroically stood their ground. But, having said that, the Orthodox Church doesn't believe in the atonement. They don't believe that Jesus was punished for our sins. Even when Isaiah 53 says that the, the, the punishment that brought us peace was placed on him. Or it pleased God to crush him. The suffering servant passages, they simply misinterpret. So no, they don't believe in the atonement. They don't believe uh, in the, the, the penal substitution, the, the, the penalty of Jesus' death, taking the punishment we deserve. So they don't teach that. There's other areas where they're not orthodox. Again, I mean that in a fundamental way uh, rather than a religious way in their beliefs. So there are many things about orthodox Christianity that... Um, um, we would say fall outside of the boundaries of the essentials of our historic Christian faith. Uh, That does not mean that they are all uh, unsaved any more than it means that Catholics who teach, uh, I think, pernicious things um, doesn't mean that Catholics, there aren't some Catholics who are really saved who are really born again. I just think there's not many. I think it's hard. I think that probably is the right um, um, measuring stick as it relates to the Orthodox Church as well. I personally know some Orthodox Christians who I believe to be saved, um, men filled with the joy of the Lord. I also know some Orthodox Christians who, uh, if you look at them and they tell you they're Christians, you'd say, really? I'm shocked. It's not that they're bad people or doing bad things. It's just that they don't really consider God. They go to church. They go through a liturgy. They repeat themselves. And that's their God thing. That's not being born again. So um, don't judge individuals. Don't judge a heart. That's God's purview. But, Henry, we can look at the Orthodox Church itself and say these things they believe fall outside what we would call the boundaries of essential doctrines of the Christian faith. So I hope that helps. Um, Henry, uh, one other thing, I'm an Orthodox acquaintance um, who is actually 
angry that he's actually Hank Hanegraaff, speaking of Hank Hanegraaff, angry that he's still on the radio answering Bible questions. She said, nobody can understand the Orthodox faith right after they come into it. It takes years, decades, sometimes much longer to understand it. And it particularly um, uh, makes this woman angry uh, because on the radio he says things like, no, Orthodox Christianity is just where my journey ended up. It's sort of the fulfillment of all the things I've been teaching all of these years. Now we have a body of his work on, um, on the internet on the radio, uh, there's, there's no uh, difficulty finding out what he's taught and what he's believed. What he has embraced now is far different than a lot of that. So, do they believe in the atonement? The church, the Orthodox Church, does not. So, Henry, I hope that helps. Okay, we're coming up to the end of the first half of the program. We'd love your live calls and questions. The phones have been quiet the first half of the program. 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love to have your live calls. May the Lord give you the question that you really need the answer to. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the wednesday program remember jonathan and his armor bearer tonight at seven o'clock you can watch it at calvarysa.com or you can join the most God-loving group of people in the whole world uh, here at 7 o'clock if you are in the area. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's go to line one and talk with Victor. Victor, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, sir, Pastor Ron. I have a question for you. Um, I'm sure you're sort of an epidemic of uh, especially young people having anxiety attacks. Uh, it's extended, it's extended into my, my, especially my wife's family, and now it's affecting our own home. Um, 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 we, um, I'm trying to study, uh, teaching uh, Bible study almost every night, uh, and uh, <clears throat> I just wanted some advice as to uh, what to cover, what parts of the Bible to talk to them. Uh, and, and so uh, advice that you have exactly what areas to cover about the anxiety, anxiety. Uh, uh, and um, if you could I'll uh, go ahead and listen on the phone on the radio and with your answer and like I said it's, it's an epidemic there's several uh, members uh, of, of, of uh, our family uh, my wife's family and her extended family that uh, are going through something I've never seen anything like it something's going on here and uh yeah. Uh, I just wanted to, if you could uh, g- give me some advice on, on how to deal with it. Right, thanks. Yeah. I'll, I'll hang up I'll, and do Thank you, Victor. I'll do my best. Um, you know, uh, let, me, let me say, and I don't want this to be misunderstood, anxiety is a good thing for people who aren't believers. Uh, we need to be anxious. We need to be searching. And, and it's it's trials. It's it's fear. Um, uh, it's a sense that the world is sort of pressing in on you. Uh, the relentless stress and pressure of the world that we live in. With, without Christ, it's impossible. And God uses that anxiety, uh, Victor, for unbelievers. Uh, to reach out and sort of get their attention. And, and so anxiety is a good thing. The problem is, of course, is that we treat anxiety with meds instead of treating the whole problem. You know, when Jesus went to the man at the pool of Bethesda and said, do you want to get well? Uh, he had to respond positively. Um, uh, the world that we live in, we do not respond the same way. We, we, we just medicate people and, and tell them, you know, I'll see you again when the meds run out. 
Uh, I personally think that's a tragedy. Uh, having said that, I don't want to be misunderstood as saying I'm anti-medication when people need it. They need it. Uh, but that need needs to be uh, understood uh, rather than assumed. And um, I think we do a lot of assuming. Now, as it relates to believers and the people in your family, uh, Victor, who are touched by this, this can be a debilitating thing. And I, I believe with all my heart that the more we give into it, uh, the more uh, the enemy presses in. He is without mercy. He is uh, relentless. Uh, and, and he's not ever going to give anybody a break. So when he sees weakness... Uh, he jumps on it with both feet. And that's what happens a lot of these times. Now, what you should do, you're doing uh, in large part. Obviously, I know you're praying for your family, and you should continue to do so. Uh, that's not just to give the spiritual answer. I really believe with all of my heart that prayer is firing the winning shot, especially in cases like this where the people that are suffering from the anxiety and I'll include depression in this as well because it's sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, um, it, when they're dealing with these kinds of things, they really need your prayer and they're not praying for themselves. Uh, in teaching the Word, the Word transforms us. Uh, so it's not just enough to do Bible studies. And I wouldn't look for something that fits the circumstance I would teach him the whole counsel of, of God. So take your family through a book. And in this particular case, Victor, I think Philippians would be perfect. Um, um, uh, I, I also, this will sound funny, but but uh, I'll trust that the Holy Spirit will sort of speak to your heart. Uh, the little treasure just of uh, we call Philemon. Most people call it Philemon. That's just the wrong pronunciation. But, but Philemon would be a good book to study and talk about at home. Get them engaged. Let the Word working in their hearts and on their minds um, sort of allow the Holy Spirit access to those things, but teach them through. And don't go too quickly. For example, when, when Paul greets them, um, uh, grace and peace, talk about that. Uh, you know, you've made peace with God. You, you are an enemy of God. He reconciled you to himself. He gave you peace with him, and because you have peace with him, you can now have the peace of God. Uh, Jesus promised us, Victor, uh, his peace, and I always mention in our church his personal peace. My peace I give unto you, the emphasis on the my. It's not just peace as the world gives, but my peace. Uh, it's focusing on him, being with him, instead of being closer to the things that you're anxious about. And I think, and uh, I hope I'm not misunderstood, or at least my heart's not misunderstood here, I think we just too often give in. We don't fight. And uh, when young men or young women are growing up and they're going through these uh, stages of anxiety, I think at some time you've got to stand your ground and fight. And the way we fight is with the weapons that are spiritual, not carnal, not worldly weapons. And, and and we we just, okay, Jesus, I'm with you. I'm going to trust you. When the anxiety hits, I'm going to trust you anyway. Um, we've seen, Victor, an increase of people suffering from panic attacks. And when somebody has a panic attack, the first thing they need to understand is that they're not going to die. When somebody's suffering with anxiety, they need to know right off the bat that Jesus is here, that he loves you, that he's got you in his hand. If you understand that and can communicate that with them, then you're giving them the weapons to fight with. And while we can teach them the word, while we can uh, pray for them, uh, this is a battle that they have to win. Your family members, your relatives, they've got to be willing to fight the fight. And all too often, whether it's anxiety or depression or just mood swings, um, people don't fight because they don't feel like it. And that's when we need to fight the most. When you're under attack, you need to fight the most. Remember that the attacker is an enemy who wants to destroy, and he will use any leverage he has, including uh, emotional uh, disturbances, um, um, anxiety, uh, depression, things like that. So, Victor, do that. Philippians, go through Philippians. Do maybe the first six or eight verses uh, tonight. Uh, then, then do the next section. But get through it and talk about it. Don't just preach to them or teach them. 
but but talk about it when somebody says uh, grace and peace to you um, if your family member is suffering anxiety you can say to him what does that mean to you well grace is God's unmerited favor and, and I'm grateful that God gave it but what does peace mean and so often we talk about having peace with God but we don't get the benefit of having the peace of God and those are great conversation starters and allow the Holy Spirit to open their hearts. Thank you, Victor, for calling. We'll be praying, and and, uh, I'm sure the audience will be praying as well. These are things that we need to understand. The world that we live in is just too quick to say, well, you know, this is just a condition. You're in here, some meds for it. And uh, I believe with all my heart, this is my own, just my personal opinion, I believe with all my heart that we are so medicated that we are giving the devil even a deeper inroad into just too many of our people, and we're sacrificing our young people. By the way, we've been drugging our kids for years with Ritalin or the derivatives thereof for ADD and ADHD. Um, uh, It's just the first thing. It's a reflex action when you go to a doctor and you're not feeling well, not doing well, they give you an antidepressant. And I think the devil is wringing his hands saying, I got him right where I want him. Remember also, and I'm going to mention this in my study tonight about Jonathan and and uh, uh, his armor bearer. His father, Saul, is sitting doing nothing, which is exactly where the devil wants him, while Jonathan is looking for a way to engage the fight. People who are anxious though they don't feel like it, though they're afraid of it, they need to engage the fight because it's only in the fight that Jesus will show off for them and through them. So, Victor, thanks very much. Keep us posted how everybody's doing. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from our mobile app from Rich. Pastor Ron, how do you interpret what Paul is speaking of? In 1 Corinthians 13, 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. And what is he speaking of when he speaks of that which is perfect has come in verse 10? But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Uh, Rich, there's a, there's a wide range of applications for those passages of Scripture. We all know that that um, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, we call it the love chapter. It's the most famous chapter in, in all of our Scriptures. And in this whole process, he starts out describing what love is. He starts saying, you know, if I, if I know everything, if I do everything, but have not love, I'm nothing. And then he tells us what love is. And then when he gets down to the ninth verse, um, he's basically saying we know in part. It means we, we only know what's before us. We only know what we've been given. So that means we can only prophesy in part using the gift of prophecy. Uh, In other words, we don't have all the answers to all of the questions, but a time is coming, a time yet future, when all of those issues are going to be resolved. And when he speaks of when, uh, when, when that which is perfect is come in the very next verse, what he's talking about is Jesus' return. When Jesus sets up his kingdom, when we go to be with him first, and then he sets up his kingdom on this earth, we're going to have all of the answers. Nothing will be hidden from us. We'll be like him in body and spirit. We won't be gods, but we'll be God's subjects, his servants, but we'll have our questions answered. The veil will be removed, sort of the cloud removed away from us. And we'll have all of the answers that we have been asking questions to. And even then, what I'm amazed at, Rich, is that there's going to be new things we're going to learn all the time. So that's what he means. It's not meaning that there are some people that misinterpret uh, that which is perfect has come as the, the canon of Scripture, the Word of God. That's uh, to, to completely misinterpret the passage of Scripture. Uh, they knew nothing at the time of writing First Corinthians of a, of a Bible the way we understand the Bible. Uh, so that which is perfect is Jesus. It's a reference to Jesus' return to rule and reign on earth and then in heaven for eternity. So I hope that answers your questions. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Bob holding on line one. Bob, thanks for calling. You're on the radio. Hi, Ron. If I could uh, just say, I, I really sympathize with everything you said about the pharmaceutical uh, 
hold that it has on us. And, and I, I think you're right. I think the forces of evil are behind it. Uh, now it's going to sound like I'm buttering you up because I'm going to ask you a hard question. My, my friend Jacob asked me to start listening to your show and to participate, possibly. But uh, okay. in, in, regarding the Acts 15, uh, where uh, circumcision was at, at, uh, at loggerheads, uh, some of the conservative Jews wanted uh, to observe the, the Torah in a way that where they had physical circumcision and, and they really didn't want to look at the Torah where it said circumcise your hearts. And it was a controversy. But what I was, and also other things, but I was wondering why the Sabbath was not a controversy within that uh, conference. And I'm, I find that it is evident to me that uh, in Corinth and Ephesus and, and these other places where Paul had gone out, gone out and taught and, and established uh, assemblies, that I, I believe they must have been keeping Sabbath or else it would have been an issue to the conservatives to say, hey, they have to keep Sabbath and they're not keeping Sabbath. Don't you think that in these outlying uh, churches that they were observing Seventh-day Sabbath? Therefore, it was not even mentioned at the conference. Yeah, I, I think you're making a, a sort of a leap in logic in the assumption, Bob. I understand uh, the, the, the logic in it or the logic behind it. But remember, the churches, the outlying churches were, were, were Gentile churches. And and uh, we have letters from Colossae or to Colossae. We have letters to the churches in Galatia where uh, they're told very specifically, no, the Sabbath isn't a requirement. Uh, all days are the same unto the Lord. If you worship on the Sabbath, great. But if you don't worship on the Sabbath, great. But all days are alike. So it was an issue in Jerusalem. The Council of Jerusalem dealt with some very specific issues. And the issue was specifically uh, the the. the, the the what we would call the legalistic Jews who were converts converts to Christianity, um, they basically were saying that in order to uh, be a Christian, you had to remain a Jew uh, or become a Jew, and that's why Paul withstood them to the face. Uh, he opposed Peter. He went to those who were reputed pillars because their message was completely the opposite of his message and basically saying, look, either I'm right or you're right, but we both can't be right, so let's settle this. And the council at Jerusalem concluded that, uh, look, here's what we have you do. Just just uh, don't eat meat with blood in it. Um, um, don't worship idols. Um, and, and that's really all that's necessary. So the Holy Spirit prevailed in the process. Process. But the issue of Sabbath worship, Seventh-day worship, was only uh, an issue in and around the churches uh, that were largely Jewish and legalistic in their interpretation of the Judaism, but certainly not in Corinth and certainly not in Colossae and certainly not in those cultures that were far more Greek than they were um, um, Jewish. Uh, and as the church grew, uh, some of those days would later become uh, an object of discussion and disagreement, and that would be what necessitated the letters written to uh, to the Colossians and to the Galatians, most notably. But remember, these letters were spread around and read everywhere. So uh, Seventh-day worship, we can go very early in the book of Acts, and we can find that the, the, the disciples, those who were the closest to Jesus, those when the church was uh, almost exclusively Jewish converts to Christianity. Um, their wor day of worship was the first day of the week, uh, commemorating or celebrating the resurrection. So uh, Sabbath day worship uh, was only a problem with those uh, the, the people Paul calls Judaizers, uh, those who were constantly opposing his faith, um, though, though perhaps born again, in many cases we know they were, but holding on to the Jewish traditions which Paul uh, stood against. Does that make sense? I, I can see how you're uh, coming to those conclusions. I, I appreciate that you say if you want to keep Sabbath, it's okay. Um, but I kind of, I know you, you have a, a large uh, congregation, and I know there's a big, large congregation at, on, on 1604, a couple of them up on the north side. <laughs> They're very large. And I just wonder why some of these pastors don't say, hey, we're going to have a if you all want to have a Sabbath uh, service, we're going to have that, too. Well, it's, it's your, well, it's your I, option, I, I, brothers and yeah, sisters. I, 
Yeah, I, I, I actually understand that, but, but why would we want to, to, to worship uh, a picture of Jesus when we have the fulfillment? Hebrews chapter 4 is really clear that the Sabbath was a picture of Jesus. Now, we who have the fulfillment of Jesus, why would we go backwards and observe something that was given in a law that no longer has any effect? You know, of all of the, the, the Ten Commandments, the only one, Bob, that isn't repeated in your New Testament is Sabbath day worship. The only one. Nine of ten are repeated. They're found as directions, commandments in the New Testament, uh, the things that we should do as new creations in Christ. The only one that is left out is Sabbath day worship. And the reason is because the Sabbath day worship law was given to Israel, given to Jews. It has nothing to do with Israel. Again, having said that, there are a lot of churches that meet on Saturday um, um, because they're too full or they're just giving their people uh, an option. We choose, for example, to meet on Friday night. I know churches that have Saturday night services instead of Friday night services. Um, um, but but it, it's 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 a, a very New Testament service. It has nothing to do with the Jewish observance. And uh, you know, if those who were traditional Jews from the very beginning, the the, the disciples uh, uh, who became apostles, the apostle Paul, who was who was persecuting the church of God, if they didn't maintain Sabbath worship, and if they changed the day of worship to um, the first day of the week in honor of the resurrection uh, eight, the number of new beginnings, uh, then why would we even have a desire in the world to hold on to something that uh, is already been fulfilled in the in the person of Christ, the reality versus the shadow? Yeah, although he did say no, not one yod or tittle can, will, will, will vanish from the law until all is fulfilled, but I know you're saying yeah, that but, everything has been fulfilled. Um, yeah, well, he's no Jesus said it. able to, to participate with you. Uh, Thank you, Bob. I'll, 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 I'll listen to more on the, air, on, on the radio. Thank you, Bob. God bless. Well, one other thing I think we have to understand is it, it was fulfilled. Jesus himself said at the Last Supper, this is the cup of the new covenant. And and in one statement, and by drinking from that cup, he abolished the old. And again, we've got Galatians, we've got Colossians. And so uh, the, 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 there was not a jot or a tittle. His word will endure forever. But there was a jot or a, t- a tittle of the, of the Old Testament scriptures that didn't come to fullness, to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, who was the initiator of the Old Covenant, then is fully capable of rendering it useless because he was going to go to the cross. Now here is a new covenant. That doesn't mean the Old Testament doesn't have value. It doesn't mean that we can't learn about the heart of God, the character of God, the nature of God. What it means is simply this. Jesus fulfilled it all. And we can't. And it just makes no sense to keep a law that's already been fulfilled. Hebrews 4 is very important. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And the seventh day was just a picture of the rest to come. So, Bob, thank you very, very much. I appreciate um, your respectful tone. Three four zero. Well, I don't think we have time for another phone call, so let me see what I've got in terms of a question here. Uh, here's a neat question, anonymous. Um, I'm considering having my baby at home. Is that a sin, or is it too risky? Uh, anonymous. I, I I was just going to sort of reply via email, but then I thought uh, after a conversation I had at the gym yesterday, uh, I, I thought I would take it on the air. Uh, we have a woman in our church. Her name is Sarah, and uh, uh, they've been gone on vacation. She came back, and she's like really. Her body's changed. She's gotten a little bit bigger. Uh, the baby just sort of started moving around. And, and uh, this is their, I think, their third child. And um, so we were talking about it. I said, oh, we've been praying for you. How you doing? It's good to see you. You're looking really healthy. And then she said, well, we've decided to have this baby at home. And I said, oh, that's great. How well, how'd you come to that decision? And you know what she said to me? And I love this. She said, you know, for thousands of years... 
maybe tens of thousands of years. We would have been having babies at home. Why don't we? And I, I, I started thinking, you know, it's pretty much uh, an insurance-driven, a, lit- a, a, a litigious-driven concept. We're in hospitals. Everything has to be pristine. We're doing everything to avoid risk. And again, there's no problem, of course. That's where most babies are born. Um, but Sarah feels in her conscience, in her heart, that it's okay to have the baby at home. She's got plenty of help there, and uh, they're going to have a home birth, and I think it'll be a very special home birth. So, Anonymous, if you're considering having your baby at home, God bless you. Prayerfully consider it. Uh, Make sure that you're prepared for uh, any difficulties that come. My first question to uh, the lady that I was talking to was, have your other two births been um, um, without difficulty, without any any emergency? She said, yeah, they they were fine. So uh, she's going to have the baby at home. And if that's what you want to do, it certainly isn't a sin. And it's only too risky if you have a doctor that tells you it's too risky because of some kind of uh, condition that, that you might uh, be that you might possibly experience. Uh, but uh, I think it's a, a heroic thing to do. And God bless you for, for doing it. I'm sure the Lord will be there and he'll be smiling uh, as you have your baby. So if that's the choice you make, God bless you if you choose to go to the hospital. That's okay, too. You're free to do whatever you want to do. So I hope that helps. Thanks a lot. Let me see. Where are we on time? Oops. Well, that just answered my question. There's the music. We are out of time. Remember tonight... First uh, Samuel chapter 14, Jonathan and his armor bearer, the first 15 verses. Tomorrow, beautiful Paula will be live in studio with me, ladies, so it's your day to call the word to stand on for life, the day the edition, and Paula can encourage you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow with Paula at 4 o'clock. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.